Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. We, we Lord, do thank you that you sometimes do a reset. You reset what's broken. You reset what needs to be fixed. You restore all things. You fix our messes. And so, Lord, we just thank you that that's what you're about. And so, Lord, help us to capture that this morning. As we look forward to this new year and as we look forward to today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we're in Ezekiel chapter 44 this morning. Um, I'm just going to tell you honestly, straight up, uh, unapologetically, you know, there's some passages that are like gripping uh, um, history, like fascinating, fascinating, interesting stuff, right? We, had the, we played this little game last night. Um, I think my wife came up with it, said, um, write a sentence as if you're a Bible character, right? Like what would a Bible character say? One of them was like, uh, which wife are you? The answer is, Solomon, right? One of them was, I shouldn't have left my dagger in there. <laughs> right? So if you know the Old Testament, read the book of Judges if you're bored at night sometimes. <clears throat> There's some pretty juicy stuff in there. But anyway. Um, and then, frankly, there's some passages that we can, okay, we can be okay calling them work, right? Or vegetables, or exercise. Okay? It is what it is. That's what these verses are today. Is that fair? Okay, I, I gave you, the, I gave you the, the sort of the backdrop of that. Um, but I think they're important. Ezekiel spends the first half of the book... Let me back up. Ezekiel's speaking to a group of captives in Babylon. They're captives because the nation of Judah has rejected the Lord. Uh, they've kind of worshipped the Lord, but they kind of brought in so much paganism that the Lord was really nowhere to be found there. Literally, the glory of the Lord departed from the temple in chapter 10 and 11. Yeah, we read about that uh, several weeks ago. And, um, and part of this is some of these captives that are in Babylon, there's still some folks left back in Jerusalem, but these captives left in Babylon, they would have been very discouraged they would be needing hope. They would feel like they were the generation of Jewish people after hundreds of years that may finally bring the demise of the nation of Israel as we know it. How would you like to be that? That would be like on your resume. Yeah, I was part of the loserist generation of Jews that there was. Right? You don't want that on your resume. And so these folks need, need hope. And so Ezekiel goes through, he goes through the first basically 24 chapters saying this is why you're where you're at. And then he goes through and he just so graciously starts to, as only God can do, describe sort of the restoration of God's people, getting into some pretty amazingly specific prophecy that we've read about. And then in chapters 40 to 48, he kind of closes it down by giving us a description of the millennial kingdom, which is super cool. And so basically, if you will, 
There was the captivity in, in Babylon that went on for 70 years, according to Jeremiah's prophecy. And then after that, they brought, God brought them back and they resettled uh, the nation of Judah, the city of Jerusalem. We read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, that fast forwards that to the time of Jesus. At that time, the Romans have occupied uh, the area. And uh, fast forward that to 70 AD, the Romans destroyed uh, Judah and uh, and really Jerusalem and, and all, of the, all of the Jewish identity, if you will. Fast forward from 70 AD to 1948, which you might notice is a long time, right? And miraculously, for sure, for sure, for sure, the greatest historical miracle other than, you know, the coming of Jesus was uh, the reestablishment of the nation of Israel in 1948. And so that brings us into the present era. Uh, prophetically on the timeline, the next thing I believe that happens is the rapture of the church, followed by the Great Tribulation, followed by Jesus comes back at the end of the Great Tribulation um, and sets up a millennial kingdom which will last for a thousand years. Satan is bound um, for that time, goes on for a thousand years. Interestingly, I, let me just say this, the millennial kingdom is not heaven, but it's not earth as we know it, okay? It's, it's, it's amazing. Uh, there will still be death. Uh, Isaiah tells us the guy that dies at 100 is going to be considered young. Okay. Uh, there's just, um, you know, it's not, it's not fully heaven, but can you imagine a world, just put it this way, can you imagine a world where Jesus reigns on earth and Satan is bound? It'd be a pretty cool place, right? And so, um, again, all we have is the description of it. And then after that, that thousand years, Satan is released for a brief time. He causes a little bit more deception. And then finally, uh, there's another great battle. He's, caught, he's cast into hell, and uh, we live eternally in heaven. Okay? So, uh, we as believers in Jesus Christ uh, live eternally in heaven. And so, all that to say, okay, what, why all that? Well, these chapters of Ezekiel, chapters 40 to 48, give us really a snapshot of the life in the millennial kingdom. Is that fair? And so um, three weeks ago, was it three weeks ago? Three weeks ago, we read through the description of this, Ezekiel's temple. Uh, we went through all of that, and uh, you may recall that... Uh, um, he went through a lot of detail about all the aspects of that. We will not go through all of that, but just kind of highlight a couple of things, and we'll point it out as we go. Um, there's the uh, outer court that is, is in the barrier to the outer court, or the entrance to the outer, through the outer court, or to the outer court, if you will. There's a north gate, an east gate, and a south gate. Uh, the east is sort of considered the front. We'll read a couple references of that today. Sort of the front of the, temp of the temple. And then um, that's sort of the outer courtyard. And then we go into the inner uh, courtyard and into the inner uh, the temple itself uh, through these inner gates, the, again, the south, the east, and the north. And so um, as we read through this, I'll try to highlight it a little bit. You may think it's minutiae, um, but there's reference, you know, we'll see reference to the 
temple. Well, like, like you know, he goes, he's, in, he's inside the outer court. You can tell kind of from the description, at least the way I read it. He's inside the, the, the outer court, but then he says he's going to go into the temple, like uh, meaning, you know, really kind of this main area here. Does that make sense? And so that's all of that. Um, uh, so we'll see that as, as it plays out. So I'm going to read a lot today. Everybody okay with this? Okay. I'm going to read a lot. If you're not okay, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I'm going to read a lot, and uh, we'll give a little commentary. I do think that there are some pretty um, cool lessons to glean uh, from these, these words, but um, for sure we read it a little bit brushstrokey, if you will. Fair enough? All right. Chapter 44, verse 1. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces toward the east, but it was shut. And the Lord said to me, The gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened, and no man shall enter by it, because the Lord God of Israel has entered by it. Therefore it shall be shut. As for the prince, because he's the prince, he may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gateway and go out the same way. And so... What does this mean? It means that this gate right here is shut permanently. Why is it shut? Because um, uh, elsewhere in Scripture, we know that when Jesus does come back and set foot on earth, he's going to come in through that gate right there. So that gate's sort of reserved for Jesus, okay? So when Ezekiel comes in, he's going to come in from the, from the north gate and, um, and then enter into the uh, temple accordingly. But we see now this reference to a prince, okay? The prince is not Jesus. We read, we'll read here in a little bit, chapter 45, verse 22, the prince is going to offer a sin offering for himself and the people. So Jesus doesn't need to offer a sin offering for himself. And, um, and so we don't know exactly who this prince is. And I've said it before, it's okay not knowing everything about the scripture, right? There's some things that uh, we don't necessarily need to to work out. But this prince is somehow uh, a leader during this millennial kingdom. Verse 4, also he brought me by way of the, te- the north gate to the front of the temple. So I looked and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord and I fell on my face. And the Lord said to me, son of man, mark well, see with your eyes and hear with your ears all that I say to you concerning all the ordinances of the house and the, of the Lord all its lo- and all its laws. Mark well who may enter the house and all who go out from the sanctuary. So he's coming in from the, from the north gate into the outer courtyard, and then he's going to go into the, to the temple from there. But notice here it says, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. I said earlier, the glory of the Lord departed from the existing temple. This is obviously a future temple that Ezekiel is describing. But in the existing temple, which at the time of this writing existed in Jerusalem, right, before the Babylonians completely conquered it, The glory of the Lord departed in chapters 10 and 11. Now, God is omnipresent, right? God is here, right? God is everywhere, right? But there is something special about the glory of the Lord, right? You recall uh, in the Holy of Holies, right? The Ark of the Covenant was sort of uh, representative to the Jewish people of the glory of the Lord. You don't take the lid off of it just because you're curious what's inside it, right? The glory of the Lord's inside of that, and the glory of the Lord was overwhelming to those folks. And 
for us, I think it speaks to the idea that it's possible to be in the presence of the Lord, but to not notice or experience the glory of the Lord. Does that make sense? And this is my burden a little bit for us for 2023, frankly. I want us, kind of like what was said earlier, I want us to not hold back this year. I'm just going to tell you this. I'm not like, you know, a motivational speaker. You're like, I know. But I'm telling you this. I don't want to hold back. I do not want to hold back this year. And I think the Lord has, has birthed that in my heart. And the Lord is percolating that in my heart. And it's as real as the shoes on my feet. And I don't want us to miss that. And my burden for us as a body of Christ is it'll be possible for us to miss it. It'll be possible for us to miss it. You say, well, how do I miss it? Well, we can miss it by willful sin and disobedience, but that's not really what I'm talking about, right? We can miss it by just missing it. Right? We can miss the glory of the Lord by just like being preoccupied, being sloppy, being a little lazy, being a little entitled, needing a little me time, sleeping in. And I don't say all that to lay a trip on anybody. I, lay, I, I say that because I believe the burden of the Lord, the heart of the Lord would be, come, I want everybody to experience this. I don't want anybody to be left out. I want everybody to experience, embrace, appreciate, acknowledge, and bask in the glory of the Lord. And yet, as I say that, there will be some that will miss it. I'm not, if, you, if you miss it, I'm not going to be mad at you. I'm not going to yell at you. Because that's not the heart of the Lord either. I'm not going to lay a trip on you. I'm going to try not to lay a trip on you. But let's not miss it. I don't want to be the one that misses it. And I am convinced, like never before, Maybe it's because I believe he's coming soon. I don't know. People have thought that for a while. That's okay. But I believe the Lord is here. I believe the glory of the Lord is here. And I don't want to miss it. And I don't want anybody in the room to miss it. You know, in the desert, when the Israelites were going through the desert, that glory was right in front of them, right? By day it was a, a cloud, by night it was fire. All they had to do was look at it. But even in that, right, what did they do? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? God just 
snuffed out the, the Egyptians? Right? God just set you free. You come to an overwhelming sea. You think you're cooked. All of a sudden, it parts. Oh, that happens every day. You go through and it's not even muddy until they start to go through. Then it gets real muddy, right? You get on the other side, you sing worship to, to the Lord. You say, I'm hungry. It starts raining down bread. I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up. I'm thirsty. Tap the rock, right? I hope my shoes don't wear out. Shoes never wear out, right? God says, hey, if you think that's good, there's more where that came from. Just go up in there in the promised land and take it. Oh, yeah, but there's giants in that land. <laughs> really? Right? Are we, if they were capable of doing that, are we capable of doing that? Amen. You bet we are. Yeah. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. And when, and, and you know, I'm going to say this. The glory of the Lord, the goodness of the Lord. He usually doesn't give us like a two-minute warning. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> glory of the Lord's coming. Everybody gather in. Show up. Glory of the Lord time. Right? It happens in still small voice, not in the earthquake or in the fire or whatever else it was. Thunderstorm, was it? Anyway, of Elijah's day, right? It's in the still small voice. Glory to the Lord is going to just be here. Don't miss it. He's not going to make a big announcement. He's not going to make a big fanfare. We've got to be ready. So we're reading through chapters 44 to 48. I'm up to verse 5. Verse 6, Now say to the rebellious, to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, let us have no more of all your abominations when you brought in foreigners, uncircumcised in heart, uncircumcised in flesh, to be in my sanctuary, to defile it, my house. And when you offered my food, the fat of the, and the blood, then they broke my covenant because of all your abominations. And you have not kept charge of my holy things, but you have set others to keep charge of my sanctuary for you. Thus says the Lord God, no foreigner, uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh, shall enter my sanctuary, including any foreigner who is among the children of Israel. And so, basically, um, you know, in a sense, think of it like this. What we're going to read here is sort of a reset almost of the book of Leviticus, right? In the book of Leviticus, God gave sort of the, the law. He gave instructions for the, uh, for the tabernacle. And here he's just doing a reset. He's, you know, he's saying, hey, you know, come into the, to the temple. Um, don't bring in your paganism. There's not going to be any paganism in the temple in the millennium. Verse 10, and the Levites who went far from me, when Israel went astray, who strayed away from me after their idols, they shall bear their iniquity, yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary. So they're going to have some, you know, they messed up, but they're still going to be ministers in my sanctuary. As gatekeepers of the house and ministers of the house, they shall slay the burnt offering and the sacrifice for my people 
for the people, and they shall stand before them to minister to them, because they ministered to them before their idols and caused the house of Israel to fall into iniquity. Therefore I have raised my hand in an oath to, against them, says the Lord God, they shall bear their iniquity, and they shall not come near me to minister to me as priest, nor come near any of my holy things, nor into the most holy place, but they shall bear their shame and their abominations, which they have committed. Nevertheless, I'll make them keep charge of the temple for all its work and for all that has to be done in it. And so uh, the, the Levites are going to have a role uh, of, um, of service in that temple, and they'll be privileged to do it. Verse 15. Everybody good so far? All right. Verse 15. But the priests, <clears throat> the Levites, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer to me the fat and the blood, says the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary, and they shall come near my table to minister to me, and they shall keep my, my charge. So the priestly line of Zadok, they're going to minister in sort of the priestly manner, okay, in this new uh, temple. And it shall be, whenever they enter the gates of the inner court, that they shall put on linen garments. No wool shall come upon them while they minister within the gates of the inner court or, in, or within the house. They shall have linen turbans on their heads and linen trousers on their bodies. They shall not clothe themselves with anything that causes sweat. When they go out to the, court, to the outer court, to the outer court, to the people, they shall take off their garments in which they have ministered, leave them in the holy chambers, and put on their other garments in their holy garments they shall not sanctify the people and so uh lots of people do give different commentary on this but i want to just pause for just a second to say this when the priests minister they minister with specific clothing this was in the old testament law as well as in the millennial kingdom they're going to minister with specific clothing right they don't want to be spotted from the world james tells us that pure and undefiled religion before god is this to visit widows and orphans in their needs and keep oneself unspotted from the world. There's a, there's, a, there's a sense in which the priest needs to be unspotted from the world. Now, can the, is the priest perfect? No. But the priest needs to be unspotted. There's another thing that I think is interesting that I've heard different people comment on, and I don't know if this was God's, God's intention, but I like the concept, okay? And that is, they were not to wear anything that causes sweat. And here's the application, I believe. How many of us are ministers? Trick question. Not so tricky anymore, right? Uh, we're all ministers. If we wear the name Christian, we are ministers. Does it matter whether a church signs your paycheck or not? No. Does it matter if a missions agency or, uh, signs your paycheck or not? No. Does it matter if Caleb signs your paycheck or not? No. Right? We're all ministers. Period. And so we all do ministry. Right? We should do it wearing clothing that does not cause us to sweat, spiritually speaking. You can wear whatever you want, as long as it's decent. Right? But there's an idea that in our serving, and frankly, I'm just going to hope I can say this out loud. I think sometimes the Lord undoes some of, I've talked with some of you about this. Some of us have this sort of ministry idea, maybe it's from our backgrounds or from our experiences or whatever, that 
the idea of ministry is go, 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 do, 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 work, 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 sweat, sweat, sweat. Fair enough? Right? Where does that come from? It comes from good intentions, right? Jude says we need to contend earnestly for the faith. That's a diligence statement. We need to be super diligent. But we need to be super diligent by the leading of the Holy Spirit and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And to do it in a way that causes sweat is to do it in our own flesh. Do we get burned out? Yeah, we do sometimes. Do we need a reset? Yeah, we do sometimes. Put on clothing that doesn't cause sweat, right? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Colossians. Put on, put on, put on. Tender mercies, loving kindnesses. All that, right? Let the Lord lead. Let the Lord lead. Let the Lord empower. As He does it, man, be diligent. Be diligent. Don't be slack. But not in our own flesh or in our own strength. Verse 20. They shall neither shave their heads nor let their hair grow long, but they shall keep their hair well trimmed. No priest shall drink wine when he enters the inner court. They shall not take as a wife a widow or a divorced woman, but take virgins of the descendants of the house of Israel, the widows of priests. That only applied to priests. Don't grow your hair long if you want. If you're a son of Zadok. If my name was Zadok, my sons would have trimmed hair. And they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the unholy and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. In controversy, they, in controversy they shall stand as judges and judge it according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws and my statutes and all my appointed meetings, and they shall hallow my Sabbath. What are, those, what are the priests going to do in that day? They're going to teach the people the difference between the holy and the unholy. That's a great thing. That's a great thing. They're going to discern. They're going to cause the people to discern between the clean and the unclean. We need to teach the nature of God. We need to embrace the nature of God. When I stand here and read His Word, I need to, to rightly, as best as I can, rightly divide the Word of truth. I need to understand God's character and try to communicate it so that we all understand God's character. That's the discernment between uh, good and evil, between clean and unclean, between holy and unholy. God's very holy, but He's very personal. And we need to understand that. They shall not defile themselves by coming near a dead person. Only a father or mother, for son or daughter, for brother or unmarried sister, they, may they defile themselves after He is clean, cleansed. They shall count seven days for him, and on the day that he goes to the sanctuary, to minister in the sanctuary, he must offer his sin offering in the inner court, says the Lord God. And so, it's just sort of some details of the, for the priest. Now, if you're an astute listener by this time, I'm talking to all of you, you say, wait a minute, you just said this is in the millennial kingdom. And you've harped on forever that we interpret scripture as literal, we interpret prophecy as literally as we can, right? Have I said that? Yes. And you said that Jesus Christ and his death on the cross pays the complete price for our sins. Have I said that? Yes. Why are we doing a sin offering in the millennial kingdom 
after Jesus. Does that enter anybody's minds? Right? It's a great question, right? This is fat, and honestly, I had to do a little bit of a mental unwind on this. We think that in the Old Testament, you get forgiveness of sins by sacrificing an animal, and in the New Testament, you get forgiveness of sins by faith in Jesus Christ, right? What did Paul tell the Galatians about Abraham? Abraham was justified by faith. And Abraham, by the way, came even before the Old Testament Levitical system of sacrificing animals, right? So Abraham was good, right? And so uh, why is Paul going through that whole thing in Galatians? He's talking to people that have that sort of Jewish mindset, like, like, like we're, you know, that we're saved by, uh, you know, if we started in the Spirit, now we're going to finish this off in the flesh. That was the message to the Galatians. And Paul's like, no, you're not going to do that. You can't do that by sacrifices. Even Abraham, the father of the Jewish people who came before the Levitical priesthood, was justified by faith. And so the Old Testament saints were justified by faith, just like Abraham was. We are justified by faith. Everybody's been justified by faith. The blood, of, the, the blood of, those, of those sacrifices was an expression of, uh, was an offering, was an expression of their faith. It was not the essence of their salvation, but it was an expression of their faith that would point them to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Does that make sense? So nobody in the Old Testament was, was saved by sacrificing. Okay, they were saved by faith. I mean, if you're anything like me, I mean, there have been several, over the years I've always thought like, man, you know, you read through the Old Testament law for the first time. You're like, dude, I go and, sa- I mean, how many times, how many lambs do you got to have around here, right? And you go sacrifice one for your daily sin offering, right? On your way out the temple, you trip over a dog, right? And you cuss at the dog, and you say, whose dog is this? And, whoop, and you, you didn't even get home. You got to go back, right? Can you imagine how burdensome that would be, right? Nobody was, the, the, sin, the offerings were an expression of obedience to the Lord as an act of faith. And if you think about it, that carries out through the, through the whole Bible, right? What does James tell us? Faith without works is dead, right? You know, if uh, the example I've said before, if I say, if I say, hey, I have faith that there's a tornado coming. It's going to touch down here in about three minutes. And I keep talking and reading, right? Then do I have faith that that tornado's coming? Not at all, right? Faith and works go hand in hand. And so to the Old Testament uh, Jewish system, it was faith, and the offerings went hand in hand with that, just like James tells us that faith and works go hand in hand. Fair enough? So, in the, in the millennial kingdom, there will be offerings uh, as described here. So, there you go. 
Verse 28, it shall be in regard to their inheritance that I am their inheritance. You shall give them no possession in Israel, for I am their possession. They shall eat the grain offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. Every dedicated thing in Israel shall be theirs. The best of all the first fruits of any kind and every sacrifice of any kind from all your sacrifices shall be the priests. Also you shall give to the priests the first of your ground meal to cause a blessing to rest on your house. The priest shall not eat anything, bird or beast, that died naturally or was torn by wild beasts. So great little picture here uh, that the priests will not have really any possession. God is their provision, but as God provides, what do they get? They get the best of everything. Isn't that a great picture of the Lord's provision? Yeah. Right? So that's, that's what the priests will get. Chapter 45, moreover, when you divide the land by lot into inheritance, you shall set apart a district for the Lord, a holy section of the land. Its length shall be 25,000 cubits, the width 10,000. This is about 65 square miles. Uh, it shall be holy throughout all its territory all around. Of this, there shall be a square plot for the sanctuary, 500 by 500 rods with 50 cubits around it for an open space. So this is the district you shall measure, 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 wide. It, in it shall be the sanctuary, the most holy place. It shall be a holy section of the land belonging to the priests, the ministers of the sanctuary who come near to minister to the Lord. It shall be a place for their houses and a holy place for the sanctuary, an area of 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 wide. It shall belong to the Levites, the ministers of the temple. They shall have 20 chambers as a possession. And so uh, the land will be divided among the Israelites, but there's a 65 square mile area that's going to be set apart for the Lord and for the priests and Levites. Verse 6, you shall appoint as the property of the city an area 5,000 cubits wide, 25,000 long, adjacent to the district of the holy section. It shall belong to the whole house of Israel. The prince shall have a section on one side and on the other of the holy district and the city's property on, and bordering on the holy district and the city's property, extending westward on the west side of the, and eastward on the east side. The length shall be side by side with one of the tribal portions from the west border to the east border. The land shall be his possession in Israel. My princes, notice this, shall no more oppress my people, but they shall give the rest of the land to the house of Israel according to their tribes. And so the prince and, the, and sort of the other princes, uh, again, we don't know exactly who they are or how that authority goes, uh, but they're going to have some authority and they will not oppress the people. People in places, in positions of authority, you know, authority is an interesting thing. Um, authority really is a responsibility. If you're in a position of authority, whatever it is, you are given, uh, you are entrusted with a God-given responsibility, not to be taken lightly, and certainly not to be abused for your own gain. There's, God has very little, very little room for that, very little room for that. Verse 9, thus says the Lord God, enough, O princes of Israel, re remove violence and plundering, execute justice and righteousness, and stop dispossessing my people, says the Lord God. You shall have honest scales and honest ephah, and an honest bath, the ephah and the bath shall be of the same measure, so that the bath contains one-tenth of a homer and an ephah one-tenth of a homer. Their measure shall be according to the homer. The, the shekel shall be 20 geras, 20 geras, 25 shekels, and 15 shekels shall be your mina. So, again, ministers must deal with integrity. They must have uh, honest scales and weights and, and measuring uh, units. Everybody okay? You want to stretch? All right. 
Verse 13. This is the offering which you shall offer. You shall give a sixth of an ephah from a homer of wheat, a sixth of an ephah a homer of barley, the ordinance concerning oil, the bath of oil, a tenth of the bath from a core. The core is a homer of ten, or ten baths, for ten baths are a homer. And one lamb shall be given from the flock of two hundred from the rich pastures of Israel. These shall be for grain offerings, burnt offerings, peace offerings to make atonement for them, says the Lord God. All the people of the land shall give this offering for the prince in Israel. Then it shall be the prince's part to give burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the feasts, the new moons, the Sabbaths, and all the appointed seasons of the house of Israel. He shall prepare the sin offering, the grain offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offerings to make atonement for the house of Israel. <coughs> now you think, wow, that's a mouthful. But imagine this. Think of it like this. This is sort of a one-paragraph reset of the book of Leviticus, right? During the millennial kingdom. God is setting everything right. He's doing a reset. And so there's going to be uh, this, this uh, Jewish uh, worship system uh, in the millennial kingdom, and they're going to have these offerings. And it's going to be an expression of worship. It's going to be a cool thing. Verse 18, thus says the Lord God, in the first month, on the first day of the, first of the month, you shall take a young bull without blemish and, cl and cleanse the sanctuary. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering and put it on the doorposts of the temple, on the four corners of the ledge of the altar, and on the gateposts of the gate of the inner court. And so you shall do on the seventh day of the month for everyone who has sinned unintentionally or in ignorance. Thus you shall make atonement for the temple. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, you shall observe the Passover, a feast of seven days. Unleavened bread shall be eaten. And on that day, the prince shall prepare, this is what I alluded to earlier, for himself and for all the people of the land, a bull for a sin offering. On the seven days of the feast, he shall prepare a burnt offering to the Lord, seven bulls and seven rams without blemish, daily for seven days, and a kid of the goats, daily for a sin offering. And he shall prepare a grain offering of one ephah, for each bull and one ephah for each ram, together with a hen of oil for each ephah. In the seventh month, on the fifteenth day of the month, at the feast, he shall do likewise for seven days, according to the sin offering, the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the oil. And so again, we don't fully understand. We, I mean, we don't, we don't live in this Jewish system. So we don't fully understand, really, I think, the significance of, the, of these offerings, but I think we will. I think we will. As we see everything play out in God's uh, prophetic timeline, I think we're going to uh, say, wow, that's, that's amazing. And yet God has this perfect plan, very specifically detailed for us. Thus says the Lord, chapter 46. The gateway of the inner court that faces toward the east shall be shut six working days, but these, on the Sabbath day it shall be opened. And on the Sabbath of the new moon it shall be opened. And the prince shall enter by way of, of the vestibule of the gateway from the outside and stand in the gatepost. And so you see the, um, you know, we said that the east gate of the outer court is shut because that's where Jesus is going to come in. But, so we're talking about the east gate of the inner court. So um, that's going to be shut uh, six working days, but on the Sabbath, uh, and the new moon, it's going to be open. So that's, that's the gate right there we're talking about. So that's how the priest will come in. 
The priest shall prepare his burnt offering and his peace offerings. He shall worship at the threshold of the gate. He shall go out, but the gate shall not be shut until evening. Likewise, the people of the land shall worship at the entrance of his gate to this gateway before the Lord on the Sabbath and the new moves. The burnt offering that the prince offers to the Lord on the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish. And the grain offering shall be one ephah for the ram and the grain offerings for the lambs as much as he wants to give as well as a hen of oil with every ephah. On the day of the new moon, it shall be a young bull without blemish, six lambs and a ram. They shall be without blemish. He shall prepare a grain offering of an ephah of, for the bull, an ephah for a ram as much as he wants to give for the lambs and a hint of oil with every ephah. When the prince enters, he shall go in by way of the vestibule of the gateway and go out the same way. And so uh, when the priest goes in, he's going to go in and out of that same um, uh, east gate of the inner uh, courtyard. Verse 9, but when the people of the land come before the Lord on the appointed feast days, whoever enters by way of the north gate to worship shall go out by the, same, by the south gate. And whoever enters by the way of the south gate shall go out by the way of the north gate. He shall not return by the way of the gate through which he came, but shall go out through the opposite gate. The prince shall then be in their midst. When they go in, he shall go in. And when they go out, he shall go out. At the festivals and the appointed feasts, the days, the grain offering shall be an ephah for a bull, an ephah for a ram, as much as he wants to give for the lambs, and a hen of oil with every ephah. Now, when the prince makes a voluntary burnt offering or a voluntary peace offering to the Lord, the gate that faces toward the east shall then be opened for him, and he shall prepare his burnt offerings and his peace offerings as he did on the Sabbath day. Then he shall go out, and after he goes out, the gate shall be shut. And so, again, what you see here is the priest is going to go... Uh, in and out of this gate and the people they're going to if they come in here they're going to go out if they come in from the south gate they're going to go out the north gate if they come in the north gate they're going to go out the south gate so there's going to be an orderly traffic flow right it's, God's a God of order God's a God of, of order and can you imagine you know a few thousand people kind of coming in here and then they decide to turn around and go back out that way that'd be a mess right so it's going to be an orderly flow of traffic, and even that, God uh, cares about the details. Verse 13, you shall, make a daily burnt, you, shall, you shall daily make a burnt offering to the Lord of a lamb of the first year without blemish. You shall prepare it every morning, and you shall prepare a grain offering with it every, every morning, a sixth of an ephah, a third of a hint of oil to moisten the fine flour. This grain offering is a perpetual ordinance to be made regularly to the Lord. Thus they shall prepare the lamb, the grain offering, and the oil as a regular burnt offering every morning. So these are the daily offerings. And then verse 16, thus says the Lord God, if the prince gives the gift of some of his inheritance to any of his sons, it shall belong to his sons. It's their possession by inheritance. But if he gives a gift of some of the, his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be his until the year of liberty after which it shall return to the prince. But his inheritance that belongs to the sons, it shall become theirs. Moreover, the prince shall not take any of the people's inheritance by evicting them from their property. He shall provide an inheritance for his sons from his own property so that none of my people may be scattered from his property. Again, God, um, God has a, a very sort of multi-generational uh, vision for his people, and specifically that involves the inheritance uh, laws. Verse 19, now, when, now he brought me through the entrance, which was at the side of the gate, into the holy chambers of the priests, which faced toward the north, and there it was a, situated at their extreme western end. 
And he said to me, this is the place where the priest shall boil the trespass offering and the sin offering and where the, they shall bake the grain offering so that they do not bring them out into the outer court to sanctify the people. Then he brought me out into the outer court and caused me to pass by the four corners of the court. And in fact, in every corner of the court, there was another court. And the four corners of the court were enclosed courts, 40 cubits long, 30 wide. All four corners were the same size. There was a row of building stones all around in them. All around the four of them, and the cooking hearths were made under the rows of stones all around. And he said to me, these are the kitchens where the ministers of the temple shall boil the sacrifices of the people. So, that carries us through the chapter 47, 46. Uh, there'll be specific areas for cooking, the sacrifices of the priests. And you think, really? Wow, that's a lot of detail, right? And again, I said this, I think, three weeks ago. I love what Damien Kyle said when he described the temple. He went through this whole thing, right? with, you know, with their people. He said, I don't want any, any of you guys to show up in the millennial kingdom and look at that temple and say, what's that, right? And so we don't want to show up in the millennial kingdom, right, and say, what's that? Or what are they doing, right? You might say, well, when we went through it, he read it kind of fast, so forgive me, I don't get all the details, I think God will cut you some slack on that, right? But you'll at least know that all this went down. Is that fair? All right. Okay, so we're going to read 47. I'm going to give a brief commentary, and then we're just going to read through chapter 48, which is a division of the land. 47, they brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. Now it's flowing out of the temple. For the front of the temple faced east, and the water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around to the outside of the outer gateway that faces east, and there was water running out of the right side. So Ezekiel's now outside of the temple, outside of the outer court. He sees a river running under the threshold and out of there. You know, water brings life, Right? Water is a picture in the, in the scripture of the Holy Spirit, right? In the Garden of Eden, there's a, there's a river running out of the Garden of Eden, right? In the New Jerusalem, in Revelation, there's a river coming out of the New Jerusalem, right? And here in the Millennial Kingdom, out of the temple, we're going to see a river running out of it. Now here's what I'm, I wanted to get to this point because this really relates to kind of what I said earlier about you know, I want us to not miss it. I want us to, to uh, capture the goodness of God, the glory of God, and all that he has for us. Verse 3. When the man of God, and when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits. He brought me through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. And again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters. And the water came up to my knees. And he measured the 1,000 and brought me through. The water came up to my waist. And again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not cross, for the water was too deep, water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. He said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. Now, the progression of this, by the way, uh, most commentators would see would be miraculous. You know, waters, bodies of water, natural bodies of water get bigger as they go downstream, right? But not this much bigger this in this short of a distance, okay? So that's miraculous in its own right. But I want you to notice this. There's some water 
there's, there's some parts of the water where you can kind of get your feet wet. Right? And again, lots of, you know, is this what he means? I mean, this is definitely, I'm drawing application from this, right? But to me, this is what this speaks to my heart. It's possible to sort of get your feet wet with the Lord. Right? Is that what you want? Raise your hand and say, sign me up for getting my feet wet. And I still maintain good control. I'm on solid ground. So you think. Right? But don't we like, you know, if I got my feet wet with the Lord, it still feels pretty doggone stable. Right? Right? Thank you. Those other verses really put you out, didn't they? <laughs> so if I'm getting my feet wet, I'm, I'm a Christian. I, I wear the name Christian. I go to church. I read my Bible. I know how to smile. I know the handshake. I give a little money. My bases are covered. I have checked the boxes of Christianity. Right? My feet are wet. Is it possible to do that? If we're honest with ourselves, have we all done that at some time or another? Yes. But not now. I'm convinced. Again, I don't want to be dramatic. I don't want to lay a trip on anybody. I don't want to be a get-my-feet-wet Christian. Period. Well, there's a little fun. You know, there's another thing you can kind of do. If you don't want the feet-wet thing, I get it, right? That seems kind of uneventful. A little stable, but uneventful. Right? Where you can go up to your knees. I'm, I'm doing all right. Right? It's kind of more of the same. Right? You get the idea? There comes a time where perhaps God would want to immerse you. Do you see the idea here? God would want to immerse you in, so, in such a torrent of water that you'd have to sw- you'd have to do a different kind of like you'd have to play a different game like there's no standing anymore it's a different set of rules it's a different paradigm we just got to swim and by the way there's even such a, uh, a an amount of water that could not be crossed your only hope is to swim in it Don't we want that much of the Lord? But if we're honest with ourselves, the thing we don't like is that we had more control when we were ankle deep. Am I right? We were in control when we were ankle deep. We feel like we're not quite in control when we're swimming downstream in a torrent of rushing water. And there's a part of us that says, I don't know where that's going to carry me. Right? If we're honest with ourselves, that's where we're at. That's the struggle of the Christian life. I've heard, I think as Damien Kyle said, you can have as much of God as you want. Think about that. You can have as much of God as you want. I want as much as he'll he'll give me. I don't want myself to limit him in any way. 
I want him to drive the ship. We say, well, what does that water do? When I returned, verse 7, there along the bank of the water were very many trees on one side and the other. Then he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley, and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. What is that, that lack of control that you have? When that water's taking you downstream, what's there? Well, there's healing there. And it shall be that every living thing that moves whether, wherever the rivers go will live. There's life there. There's not control, but there's healing and there's life. And there will be a, great, a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there, for they will be healed, and everything will live where the river goes. It shall be that fishermen will stand by it from Engedi to Eglam, and they will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be of the same kind as the fish of the great sea, exceedingly many. So I think literally there's going to be fishermen hanging out on this thing, on the edge of this thing, right? And the same kind of fish are going to be as the great sea. And they're not going to, but its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They shall be given over to salt. And so some commentators say, well, the, the Mediterranean Sea even is going to be fresh water, not salt water. Right now, the Mediterranean Sea is saltier than the ocean, Right? And so uh, the same kind of fish, freshwater fish, all along the bank of the river, on this side and that, will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither. Their fruit will not fail. Sounds like Psalm 1. They will, not, they will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. There's life in that river. There's healing in that river. There's purity in that river. That's what we want. We want all of the Lord we can get. And then he moves into sort of the divisions of the land. Thus says the Lord, these are the borders by which you shall divide the land as an inheritance among the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph shall have two portions. You shall inherit it equally with one another. For I raised my hand in an oath to give it to your fathers. And this land shall fall to you as your inheritance. This shall be the border of the land on the north from the great sea by the road to Hethlon, as one goes to Zedad, Hamath, Berathah, Sibram, which is between the border of Damascus and the border of Hamath, to Hazar, Hadakon, which is on the border of Haran. Thus the border, sorry, thus the boundary shall be from the sea to Hazar, Enon, the border of Damascus, and as for the north, northward, it's the border of Hamath. This is the north side. On the east side, you shall mark out the border from between Haran and Damascus, and between Gilead and the land of Israel along the Jordan, and along the eastern side of the sea. This is the east side. The south side toward the south shall be from Tamar to the waters of Meribah by Kadesh along the brook to the great sea. This is the south side toward the south. The west side shall be the great sea from the southern boundary until one comes to a point opposite Hamath. This is the west side. Thus you shall divide this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. It shall be that you will divide it by lot as an inheritance for yourselves and for the strangers who dwell among you and who bear children among you. They shall be to you as native born among the children of Israel. They shall have an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And it shall be that in whatever tribe this stranger dwells there you shall give him the, his inheritance, says the Lord God. So uh, specific uh, divisions of the land will be marked out. Now these are the names of the tribes. From the northern border along the road to Hethlon, at the entrance of Hamath to Hazar, Enon, the border of Damascus northward. In the direction of Hamath there should be one section for Dan, from its east to its west side. So throughout the scripture Dan was always at the far north. And by the border of Dan, from the east side to the west, 
one section for Asher, then by the border of Asher from the east side to the west, one section for Naphtali for the border of Naphtali from the east side to the west, one section for Manasseh. By the border of Manasseh from one east side to the next to the west, one section for Ephraim. By the border of Ephraim from the east side to the west, one section for Reuben. By the border of Reuben from the east side to the west, one section for Judah. By the border of Judah from the east side to the west, one section. It shall be the district which you shall set apart, the 25,000 square. Uh, cubits in width and its length the same as one of the other portions from the east side to the west with the sanctuary in the center. That was that 65 square mile area in the center. The district you shall set apart for the Lord shall be 25,000 cubits in length and 10,000 in width. To these the priests, the holy district shall belong on the north 25,000 cubits in length, on the west 10,000 in width, on the east 10,000 in width, on the south 25,000 in length. The sanctuary of the Lord shall be in the center. It shall be for the priests of the sons of Zadok who are sanctified, who have kept my charge, who did not go astray when the children of Israel went astray as the Levites went astray. And this district of the land that is set apart shall be to them a thing most holy by the border of the Levites. Opposite the border of the priests, the Levites shall have a, an area 25,000 cubits in length and 10,000 in width. Its entire length shall be 25,000 and its width 10,000. And they shall not sell or exchange any of it. They, shall, they may not alienate this best part of the land, for it is holy to the Lord. The 5,000 cubits in width that remain along the edge of the 25,000 shall be for general use by the city, for dwellings and common land, and the city shall be in the center. These shall be its measurements, the north side 4,500 cubits, the south side 4,500, the east side 4,500, the west side 4,500. The common land of the city shall be to the north 250 cubits, to the south 250, to the east 250, to the west 250. The rest of the length alongside the district of the holy section shall be 10,000 cubits to the east and 10,000 to the west. It shall be adjacent to the district of the holy section and its produce shall be food for the workers of the city. If you think this is hard for you, try reading it. The workers of the city from the, all the tribes of Israel shall cultivate it. The entire district shall be 25,000 cubits by 25,000 cubits, four square. You shall set apart the holy district with the property of the city. The rest of the men, the rest shall belong to the prince on one side and on the other of the holy district and the, of, the holy, of the city's property next to the 25,000 cubits of the holy district as far as the eastern border and westward next to the 25,000, as far as the western border adjacent to the tribal portions, it shall belong to the prince. It shall be the holy district as the sanctuary of the temple shall be in the center. Moreover, apart from the possession of the Levites and the possessions of the city, which are in the midst of what belongs to the prince, the area between the border of Judah and the border of Benjamin shall belong to the prince. As for the rest of the tribes from the east side to the west, Benjamin shall have one section by the border of Benjamin from the east side to the west. Simeon shall have one section by the border of Simeon from east to the west. Issachar will have one section by the border of Issachar from the east to the west. Zebulun shall have one section by the border of Zebulun from east to the west. Gad shall have one section by the border of Gad from the south side toward the south. The border shall be from Tamar to the waters of Meribah by Kadesh along the brook of the, to the great sea. This is the land which you shall divide by lot as an inheritance among the tribes of Israel, and these are their portions, says the Lord God. These are the exits of the city. On the north side, measuring 4,500 cubits, the gates of the city shall be named after the tribes of Israel, the three gates northward, the one gate for Reuben, one gate for Judah, one gate for Levi. On the east side, 4,500 
cubits, three gates, one gate for Joseph, one gate for Benjamin, one gate for Dan. On the south side, measuring 4,500 cubits, three gates, one gate for Simeon, one, for Is, one gate for Iskar, one gate for Zebulun. On the west side, 4,500 cubits with their three gates, one gate for Gad, one gate for Asher, one gate for Naphtali, all the way around shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that day shall be not Jerusalem. The Lord is there. Is that cool? Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. What's going to be cool about that place? I mean, honestly, as we read through it, we think, man, I'm getting a little dizzy, right? But the Lord will be there. The Lord will be there in the millennium. God wants to give us a detailed description of the millennium. It'll be His demonstration of restoration, His desire to bring things in order. It's going to be great because the Lord is there. But today, January 1st, 2023, for the rest of 2023, for the rest of our lives, it's possible to not be ankle-deep Christians. And honestly, where I feel like the Lord is leading us, and it might be a little bit painful. I mean, the Lord's had to stretch me, honestly, even in the last few weeks, as I'm kind of thinking and preparing for the upcoming year, right? It's kind of a time of reflection for me. And as the Lord's doing that, and I'll share more details as time goes on, but the Lord is stretching me. So I get it. I understand stretching. But that's where the glory is. That's where the glory is. And so we can take ankle-deep Christianity. There's a place for that. I mean, that'll, I believe you can be an ankle-deep Christian and go to heaven if that's what you want. I don't think that's what God wants for us. And I, deep down, don't think that's what we want for ourselves. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're so good to us. Thank you that you offer us the opportunity of living water. You offer us to be baptized with the living water, to be immersed in your living water. Lord, you set things in order. You saved us by grace. You make everything possible. You make everything new. And so, Lord, help us to embrace that today and this upcoming year. Have your way with us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Have an awesome, awesome week.